0: You shall follow me later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a cock shall not crow until you deny me three times. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwellings. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the, you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Dear Father, we, uh, we thank you for sending your son for us. Thank you, Jesus. We know you are the way. Uh, we just pray that you would open our minds today, open our ears and eyes to uh, understand this message and understand more about you, Lord. I pray that you would bless Tom and give him the uh, uh, message that you would have him to, uh, uh, to give to us, Lord. We just praise you for these things. In the name of Jesus, I pray. One of
1: the most amazingly wonderful things about being redeemed followers of Jesus Christ is that we will one day get to actually follow him home we will get to follow him into the very presence of God and dwell with him there forever in fact he's going to come get us and he's going to bring that place to us and put us there See, we don't merely follow a belief system or a moral code. We don't merely follow Jesus in the sense of doing what Jesus did. He does call us to all of those things. But the very heart and essence of God's promise to us is that we will follow Jesus right into the very dwelling place of God forever. The Westminster Confession says the chief end of man is is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. But God doesn't intend for us to do either of those things from a distance. And that's wonderful. As we'll see in the next few chapters of this gospel, we who have put our trust in Jesus Christ enjoy the abiding presence of God in us, in the person of the Holy Spirit, The indwelling Holy Spirit, who was given to us, who took up residence in us when we first heard the message of truth, the gospel of our salvation, and believed that message, that's when the Spirit took up residence in us. Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. But that Spirit, that marvelous person who dwells within us, is just the down payment of our inheritance. And I've said this before, if our down payment is a person, what do you think the rest of our inheritance is? The triune God is our inheritance. David said in Psalm 16, Yahweh, you are the portion of my inheritance in my cup. God's promise to us is that His eternal home will be our eternal home. That's the essence of our hope. And that promise, by the way, is woven throughout God's revelation from the first chapter of the first book of the Bible to the last chapter of the last book of the Bible. My title for this week's message and next has changed about four times. Uh, but what I've settled on is that one, Going Where Jesus Went and that title's going to apply for 2 weeks this week and next week and it's going to apply for the passage that goes from chapter 13 verse 33 to chapter 14 verse 6. I had Scott read the whole passage and we're going to do that again next week because it's all really tied together. But today we're going to get to 14:1. And we're going to see the first part of our call to follow, where the destination, the short-term destination uh, there are a couple of different pieces to this following thing. First, a short-term destination that Jesus gives us to to which we must follow him. And that is, we follow Jesus to a life laid down. And that's what we'll talk about today. Then, our long-term destination we follow Jesus to a place made ready, and that place is the dwelling place of God. This morning, our short-term destination. Verse 33, chapter 13, picks up the narrative of the events going on in an upstairs room in Jerusalem the day before Jesus is crucified. It picks up that narrative immediately after Judas has left the room. To go straight to the temple authorities so he can escort them to Jesus and point Jesus out to them with a kiss so that they may arrest Jesus and take him away to be executed the next day. Jesus addresses his eleven true disciples with Judas having left the room. He addresses his eleven true disciples beginning with the words little children. John, the apostle who wrote this gospel, picked up on that salutation and he apparently loved it because he uses it seven times in his first epistle in, as he is addressing the church of Jesus Christ. He over and over calls them little children. Here in John 13, Jesus proceeds to tell this little gathering of God's beloved children something that no little child ever wants to hear. He says, Little children, I am with you a little longer. You shall seek me. And as I said to the Jews, I now say to you also where I am going, you cannot come. Anybody know a little child that wants to hear those words? Where I am going, you cannot come. There's a really important reason that Jesus drops that very unsettling declaration on his disciples before... He sets before them the assignment in verses 34 and 35. We'll come back to that reason for verse 33 shortly. But let's go to the assignment. In verses 34 and 35, Jesus gives his disciples a new commandment. You're very familiar with it. He says, "...a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as, that means exactly as, I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, by the love that you have for one another. This is a big deal. The disciples would not yet get to follow Jesus into his Father's dwelling place. But there was a place into which they must and would follow him until He brought them to that eternal destination. They would follow him into his love. His call to them is to love one another just as he has loved them. And as they did so, as they loved others the way God had loved them, God would show the whole world who they actually were, that they were his disciples. We'll find out later. God's going to show the whole world some other things through the love that we have for each other. But let me ask this. What was new about that commandment? Jesus uh, Jesus gave him this commandment. He said, this is a new commandment, right? But nearly 1,500 years earlier, God had given Israel a pretty similar sounding commandment. In Leviticus 19.18, God said, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In Matthew 22, when an expert in the Jewish law inquired of Jesus and said, what's the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus started with the commandment that the man expected, that every Jew expected. From the Shema, from Deuteronomy chapter 6, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Jesus changes might to mind there. And then he says, the second is like it. The second command, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. But the command to love your neighbor and the command to love God, those were both 1,500 years old. Those are Pentateuch commands. So what was so new about this new commandment? Well, which is the higher standard? Love your neighbor as yourself or love one another as I, Jesus, have loved you. Just a few days after this, these men would know which was the higher standard. And they would know it very vividly. No man has ever loved anyone the way Jesus Loves those whom he saves. His love for his redeemed is a fierce, self-denying, sacrificial, earth-shaking, miraculous love. It is the love that sent the Lord of glory to die on a cross in our place. That is the love to which Jesus has called every one of his children. Now, you might be thinking, well, I'm not Jesus, so it's got to be sort of a watered-down version of that that he's expecting of me. You know, a reasonable effort. God will be okay with that, right? That would be an incorrect assumption. Listen to the words of Paul in Ephesians 4.32-5.2. to 5, 2, Let all... Bitterness and anger and wrath and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other. How? As God in Christ has forgiven you, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, listen to this, be imitators of God. As beloved children and walk in love... How? Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a soothing aroma, He doesn't say, do the best you can, muster up your best effort to love your brothers and sisters the way Christ loved you. He says, be imitators of God and love one another Exactly as Christ has loved you. The certainty that you and I will fall short of the full measure of the love he poured out upon us doesn't change the assignment. That's really important. Our ability doesn't define the assignment. Or I should say, our performance. He's given us. He's given us the ability. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. We've, we we are indwelled with the Holy Spirit, who raised Him from the dead and seated Him above every authority, every dominion, every name that is named in this age and in the age to come. Our problem is not ability, but we will fall short. That doesn't change the assignment. That's important. Jesus calls us to love one another just as he has loved us. That means in the same measure, in the same way. Now we have to make a connection here between the command to love one another as Jesus has loved us and the call of God to lay down our lives for one another. Just as Jesus was the next day going to lay down his life for these men and for all whom he came to save. Love is a life laid down for others. If you don't make that connection, you'll never define love the way God does. But God is at work, if you're his child, he's at work every day of your life to burn into your heart that definition of love. Love is a life laid down for others. That means it's a life given up. It's a, it's, it's a life denied to self for the sake of others. Jesus directly makes this world-changing link just a little later that same evening in chapter 15 of this Gospel, still in the upper room, still the same night. Jesus says, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that one laid down his life for his friends. And he says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. What did he just command them? To lay down their life. To love as they have been loved by him. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us he laid down his life for us that's how God defines love Ephesians five twenty five. husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and what gave himself up for her he laid down his life for her that's love by the way Charity is not the same as love. 1 Corinthians 13 says, If I sell all my possessions and give everything I've got to the poor, but do not have love, I'm just noise. See, love is laying down your life to point someone to Christ, to move someone to Christ. All right. How must we follow Jesus? here and now until the day that we get to follow him into the very presence of his Father by loving one another as he has loved us. And how is that? (laughs) By laying down our lives for one another. By the way, you and I don't know who in the incredible mass of humanity that is unsaved will one day be called little children by Jesus Christ. So this extends outward from the body. Our primary call... To love one another is to love one another in the community of God's people. But we don't stop there. Where do you draw the boundaries when it comes to loving a brother or sister in Christ? Including a believing spouse or child or parent who seems bent on punishing you for loving him or her. Anybody ever experience that? A lot of people here have. At what point do you just say, I will not let myself be treated this way anymore? As you ponder that question, consider what your eternal destiny would be if Jesus ever said that to you. I will not let myself be treated like this anymore. How was he treated that night and the next day for you? What if Jesus said today to you, I won't let myself be treated like this anymore. He's worthy of nothing but our perfect obedience. So he doesn't have to put up with us. He doesn't have to love us when we're unlovable. But he does. These guys were a motley crew, weren't they? I mean, if, if you track what goes on with this, these disciples from beginning to end in all four gospels, these aren't these aren't paragons of faithfulness. They're like us. Where do you draw the boundaries? You and I are called to love each other with the same, the same, fierce, self-denying, sacrificial, earth-shaking miraculous love that sent the Lord of glory to the cross to pay for your sin and mine, to redeem us for Himself. It is by that love that all men will know that we are disciples of Jesus Christ. Not by some scaled-down model of that love. Not by some reconfigured, less demanding, more convenient version of that love. If it's not that love, if it's not his love, it doesn't keep the assignment. Now I know there are people in this room who have suffered greatly. There are people here who have been abused by others in ways they can't even bear to think about. There may be some here who are suffering that kind of abuse right now. There are times when God would have you get out of harm's way. Or take others out of harm's way. In Acts chapter 9, friends of the Apostle Paul lowered him in a basket from a high wall to get him away from a group of Jews who were bent on killing him that day. Killing him for proclaiming Christ. Paul fled from certain death one day to proclaim Christ many days beyond that. But by the end of his ministry, that was very early in his ministry. By the end of his ministry, Paul had suffered very often and very severely to lay down his life for the sake of Christ, out of love for the lost and for the people of God. And by the way, Paul eventually went to Jerusalem after having been told by the Spirit, that he would be bound in chains when he went. He was finally beheaded for his faithful and relentless proclamation of the gospel out of love. Whatever you're convinced you have to do today, beloved, you must understand that the life to which God has called you until he brings you into his very presence is a life laid down in love for others who are just as unworthy of that love as you are of Christ's love. The short-term destination of every child of God is to follow Jesus to a life laid down in love. But there's a big problem. See, our big problem is that's our short-term destination, but we're not ready to go there even before Jesus reveals this new commandment to His disciples, He begins to reveal something else. And this takes us back to verse 33. He begins to reveal something to these disciples that they must understand. And that is that they are not ready to follow Him. He has a short-term destination and a long-term destination to which He's going and to which He will bring every disciple of His, but they're not ready to follow Him to either of those destinations just yet. If the rest of this chapter and the first 15 verses of chapter 14 tell us anything about the disciples, it is that they are very slow learners. Peter, Thomas, and Philip each will get an opportunity in those verses to demonstrate how clueless they are about things that are absolutely central Things like where Jesus is actually going and how you get to know His Father. Let's go back to verse 33. After Judas left to arrange Jesus' arrest that very night, Jesus spoke to the eleven men who remained with Him. He addressed them tenderly as little children, and then He told them, as I said, He told them something no little child wants to hear. He said, little children, I am with you a a little while longer. You shall seek Me. And as I said to the Jews, I now say to you also, Where I am going, you cannot come. Consider how unsettling those words were to these men. And then consider how much more unsettling they were rendered because Jesus included the words, As I said to the Jews, I now say to you. I put that little chart up there to make a comparison with what Jesus said to the Jews on this same score. The Jews, and I'll point that out in a second, the Jews had been trying to kill Jesus for at least the last couple of years before this. But they, the disciples, had walked away from their jobs and from all the relationships that made their jobs viable. They had left their extended families and their close friends. They had followed Jesus all over Palestine for three years, often into exceedingly perilous circumstances. They had heard over and over the horrible insults and threats that the Jews had leveled against Jesus, And by association, those threats had been leveled at them. So how, how could Jesus say to them the same thing he had said to the Jews? I want to go back to chapter 8 for a second, but make sure we got a little context. In chapter 8, Jesus had just told the Jews that his own witness concerning himself had already been powerfully confirmed, corroborated by his father's witness. And that was a multifaceted witness. So after he said that to the Jews, they said to him, okay, then where's your father? And Jesus answered them, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Jesus is going to make that same point with the disciples in chapter 13. But, As usual, the Jews tried to seize him so they could get rid of him. But they were unsuccessful, as usual. Because at that point, chapter 8, his hour had not yet come. But, of course, now it had. But I want you to listen in chapter 8 to verse 21 to what Jesus said to these Jews and compare it with what he just said in chapter 13 to his disciples. He said to the Jews, I go away and you shall seek me and shall die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Now at the end of John 13, Jesus appears to be lumping His disciples together with those Jews. He even spells out that connection. He says, you shall seek me and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. If I had been one of those 11 men, I would have been waiting with bated breath to see if Jesus was going to add the only missing piece from what he told the Jews back in chapter 8, and you shall die in your sin. Why, even for a moment, would Jesus say something to his own disciples that would make that kind of connection? For Peter, it gets even dicier. Just three verses later, Peter by the way, completely ignoring that new command that Jesus just gave in verses 34 and 35. asked Jesus, okay, so where are you going? Jesus said, where I'm going, you cannot come. Peter says, okay, where are you going? And Jesus says to Peter, where I go, you cannot follow me. But then he adds the word now. And then he adds five more words that no doubt sounded very promising to Peter, but you shall follow later. Now, did those words end up being encouraging words to Peter when you get to the end of this gospel? You shall follow later. The time will come, Peter, when men will stretch out your hands and take you to a place you do not want to go. And you'll follow me. You'll follow me in love. You'll follow me with a life laid down before you follow me into the presence of my Father. Peter thought he'd dodge the bullet there, but now with that unspeakably important distinction out on the table between the disciples and the Jews, they can't follow Jesus ever, but the disciples will follow him later. Peter jumps at the chance to distance himself even further from those evil Jews and from whichever of his comrades was just about to fulfill the age-old prophecy that there would be a betrayer of Jesus among his own. So Peter says, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. That's a very intriguing choice of words. I will lay down my life for you. But with one short question followed by one very short-term prophecy, Jesus pulls the wind so far out of Peter's sails that it had to leave every man in that room reeling. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me, Peter? Truly, truly, I say to you, a cock shall not crow until you deny me. I want to make one more verse comparison. I want to compare chapter 13, verse 21 with chapter 13, verse 38. Right after Jesus quoted a psalm that David had written a thousand years earlier, prophesying the betrayer, saying a betrayer would come to betray God's Messiah, Jesus said to all the disciples, Truly, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. Now, in verse 38, he says to Peter, Truly, truly, I say to you, singular, a cock shall not crow until you, Peter, deny me three times. If I had been Peter, I would have been terrified. I would have assumed that Jesus was identifying me as the betrayer that David had prophesied a thousand years earlier. Bear in mind, none of the disciples at this point knew that that betrayer was Judas. They probably least suspected him because he was the guy Jesus let handle the money. Imagine what was going through the disciples' minds at this point. Jesus, we're nothing like those Jews. We've been following you faithfully for three whole years and you're comparing us to them? You just told us, we can't follow you. And you said, just like I said to the Jews, you can't follow me. And now you're telling Peter he's going to deny you three times before sunrise? Why, beloved, why would Jesus have allowed Peter and the other disciples to even have such thoughts in their minds? for even a moment. Why? To force them to reckon with the fact that they were not ready, willing, or able to follow him. You remember Romans 3? Are we Jews better than those Greeks? Well, the disciples, they were Jews, but they thought that they were better than, and more worthy and more deserving than those Jews that had been persecuting Jesus and Jesus wanted to make them understand it wasn't about their worthiness none of this is about their worthiness none of this is about their readiness it's all about him stick with me for a minute they were not ready willing or able to follow him they had had to come to understand that they were utterly dependent on him in order for these promises to get fulfilled In their lives. For them to go where Jesus was going to take them, he had to be the one that worked in them to bring that about. Peter said, I will lay down my life for you, Jesus. And Jesus said, actually, you won't. You'll deny me to save your own skin. And you'll do it three times before tomorrow. But Jesus, listen, Jesus had not asked Peter to lay down his life. Jesus he had, he had told his disciples that they would lay down their lives for one another Jesus has no need and will never have any need for us to lay down our lives for him we can't purchase his salvation he doesn't need it he's the one who saves he's God he's perfect he's sinless he lacks nothing we don't lay down our lives for Jesus we, da- we lay down our lives for one another As he laid down his life for us. See, to go where Jesus was ultimately going, the disciples had to go where Jesus was immediately going. First. To go where Jesus was ultimately going, they had to go where he was immediately going first. And they weren't ready to do either. The problem is that we have an assignment we can't keep. An assignment we're not ready to keep, we're not able to keep, and we're not willing to keep. How can people like us ever fulfill that assignment? Well, Jesus has a perfect solution for us. The how question is huge, isn't it? I mean, what good is it to know what God intends for us to do if we don't know how to do it? Peter wasn't yet ready to keep the assignment. He, again, declared proudly that he was ready to lay down his life for Jesus. (laughs) But later that same night, he wouldn't be able to bring himself to even admit that he knew Jesus, even when he was just talking to a meddling maidservant. We're not ready, beloved, to lay down our lives for one another until Jesus makes us ready. Even your very best efforts to love others as Jesus has loved you, will never make you worthy or able to dwell in your Father's presence. It goes the other way around. Jesus makes you worthy to dwell with his Father in order to make you a lover of men and women. In order to make you love his way. You will never put on Christ's righteousness until God puts Christ's righteousness on you. And that brings us to John 14.1. Rather, John 14.1 brings us to that. What does that verse say? Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. You trust in God, trust me. This is so important, and it is so elusive sometimes to us. Just as it was to these guys. If you're a believer in Jesus, he has already made you righteous in the eyes of God in order to make you love as he loves. In order to actually fulfill the law in you. Titus 2.14 says Jesus gave Himself for us, laid down His life, that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. See, He laid down His life to create a people zealous for good deeds. He didn't lay down His life for a people zealous for good deeds. You with me? Why did Jesus give Himself for us? To make us His and to make us like Him. And the order is really, really important. He didn't die for people who were like Him. He makes us His in order to make us like Him. It's very important we don't get those two crossed up. Jesus called Peter's bluff in verse 38 not to destroy Him. See, it, it looks mean at first, but it's not mean. He didn't... Call Peter's bluff to destroy him, he did so to teach him something critically, critically important for every child of God. Loving others as Jesus has loved us is his work, not ours. There's a reason that there are no structural indicators in the text that divide John 13:38 from John 14:1. It's like there's just a breath between the two. The only thing that changes is Jesus goes from you singular, Peter, to you guys, all of you disciples. But the first verse of chapter 14 follows directly from the painful words that Jesus just spoke to Peter. He just said, not only, Peter, would you fail to keep your promise to lay down your life for me, you will deny me. And then he says to all 11 of God's little children gathered with him in that room, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Let not your heart be troubled that I'm leaving you. Let not your heart be troubled that you cannot follow where I'm about to go. And let not your heart be troubled even that you will disappoint yourselves this very night by scattering like sheep. These men would not all deny Christ with curses that night the way Peter would, but they would all fall asleep in the garden while the enemies of Jesus approached. And they would all abandon him in the hour of his greatest sorrow and pain, just as Zechariah prophesied. And they needed to know that about themselves. They needed to learn that about themselves so that they would come to trust only in him and not in Jesus themselves. And you and I need to learn this about ourselves so that we will come to trust only in him and not in ourselves. If you're looking to you and your strength to make you love people the way Jesus has loved you, you're going to just be an epic failure There's a marvelous book that Ron Manus recommended to this body a couple of years ago. It's been around since the early part of the 20th century, but it's still a treasure chest. It's called The Hammer of God. It's written by a Swedish Lutheran, of all people, from the early 20th century. His name is Bo Geertz. Brother Geertz was a man who understood the amazing grace of God at a level that many believers simply I want you to listen to these words. I may read them again to you when we arrive in John's Gospel at the foot of the cross. But they're exceedingly fitting right here. The way of obedience leads to the foot of that cross. There one stands, a poor wretch like Peter, on that first Good Friday, full of shame and despair, looking upon His crucified Savior whom He had been unable to follow. There it becomes apparent that the Lord's best disciples are betrayers and deniers. They are unworthy of Him, sharing in the guilt of His death. But there at the cross it also becomes clear that the Lord Himself makes atonement for their sins where the way of obedience ends at Golgotha with judgment upon us, everyone who believes may nevertheless stand on the rock of atonement. There, the way of grace begins. The new and holy way. Through the veil, the way that is sanctified by His blood. See, there the way of obedience actually begins. Friends, we are all betrayers and deniers. You need to know that about yourself. But as God makes that deeply painful reality known to you, let the eyes of your troubled heart be lifted up to gaze upon our lifted up Savior. You say you trust in God? Trust in Jesus, the Son of God, who came from the Father's eternal dwelling place to seek and save that which was lost. And we were all lost. The way to the Father is not in you. You'll never find it there in any measure at all. And you need to know that. If you haven't come to that conclusion yet, and if God is drawing you toward faith in Jesus Christ, then He will reveal to you your desperate helplessness to make yourself worthy of Him. The poured out blood of our glorious Savior is our only merit in the eyes of God, now or ever. It's only because of his life laid down in love toward us that we are empowered to lay down our lives in love toward one another and toward the lost. His redeeming blood is our one and only way to follow Jesus into his love, into his suffering, into his death, and one day all the way to his home in the presence of his father where we will live with him forever there's no other way there is only his life laid down for us dear father your assignment for us is clear and it's utterly impossible the only one who can keep it is jesus christ Paul said I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. That's what you call us to, Father. To trust Him. Every day. All the time. In everything. Because without that trust... We will never be prepared. We will never be ready to keep our assignment. Father, teach us daily how utterly dependent we are on the one who gave us his life to make us his treasured possession and to make us like him. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.